Hello and welcome to edition number 1,929 of the Whitney Talking News that we're recording in the Methodist Church in Whitney on Thursday the 15th of September. I'm Peter Bean, I edited this edition and beside me at the recording controls is Peter Brading. Now this week the Whitney Gazette is virtually full of stories about Elizabeth II, her reign and especially her influence and visiting our local area. Our four readers this evening are Alan Ravel, Anne Crawford, Michael Walsh and Valerie Palmer. And so, Alan, let's take the first page of the Gazette, which is pretty prominent with a major headline. Uh, Yes, it is. Uh, The headline is just simply in loving memory, in very large type, and two uh, photographs of the Queen when she visited West Oxfordshire. Uh, one of them, which is uh, in black and white, inset into the uh, into the page, is when she was visiting the Whitney Blanket Mill in 1959. And the other one, uh, a large colour photograph dominating the page with a smiling picture of the Queen visiting uh, RAF Bryce Norton, uh, it doesn't say when that was, but I'm sure we'll get into that as we, um, as our other readers talk about um, her visits to the county. And the, the subheading on the page reads, Special Edition, West Oxfordshire joins the nation in paying tribute after death of Queen Elizabeth II, 1926 to 2022. Our next two articles we'll take together and they'll be read by Anne and Michael and they're about the thoughts and prayers of the local district. Yes, the thoughts and prayers of West Oxfordshire are with the royal family, said West Oxfordshire's civic and church leaders after the death of the Queen was announced. Mayor of Whitney, Liz Duncan, and the leader of the council, Vicky Gwatkin, said in a statement that they were truly saddened by the Queen's passing. They wrote, now is the time to reflect on her decades of diligent and dedicated service throughout the unprecedented longevity of reign and the tremendous changes she has seen in her lifetime. Having reached her milestone platinum jubilee, Her Majesty has been at the heart of community celebrations across the nation this year. On behalf of the Town Council and the people of the Town of Whitney, we offer our sincere condolences to members of the Royal Family at this very sad time. The flag on the Town Hall has been flying at half-mast and the Town's ceremonial mace bears a black ribbon. At Whitney Town Council Committee meeting, Whitney Town Council Committee meetings are cancelled during the time of national mourning. Floral tributes have been laid at St Mary's Church and there's a book of condolence in the Corn Exchange for people to leave messages. Current Whitney MP Robert Court said, The sad passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth is keenly felt by everybody throughout West Oxfordshire and beyond. For every one of us, In the United Kingdom, this is a moment of deep grief and most profoundly the end of an era. As we mourn the passing of our finest monarch and remember a remarkable life, 
My thoughts and those of everybody in West Oxfordshire are with the royal family as we enter into this period of national mourning. But above all, we say thank you to Her Majesty for always putting our country and the Commonwealth first, for being the unifying constant in all our lives, for always finding the right words, for everything she has done and everything she has achieved, for devoting her life to us, truly, Elizabeth the Great. Chair of West Oxfordshire District Council, Julian Cooper, said her dedication to our country and the Crown will go down in the history books and her commitment to a life of service is an example to us all. She will be long remembered and we are thankful for all she has done as our longest serving monarch. Mr Cooper joined councillors, council staff and residents from across the district in laying floral tributes at St Mary's Church on Friday. In line with national guidance, the council will be continuing business as usual over the coming days, but councillors will be wearing black armbands. The council will fly the Union flag at half-mast until the morning after the Queen's state funeral on Monday, September the 19th. Reverend Canon Toby Wright of St Mary's Church said the church wanted to express its grief and sadness. A civic service took place at St Mary's on Sunday to give thanks for the Queen's life. The traditional blessing at the Golden Gallopers' Carousel on the Lees, which opens Whitney Feast, was conducted with no choir, procession or hymns. He said, Our prayers are with our new King Charles and with all the royal family. This is an additional sadness at a critical time for the nation. But he said the Queen had such a strong faith and it was her strong hope that this was not the end and this is a moment to hold on to that. Our hope and prayer is that she is now in glory. May she rest in peace. A prayer station has been set up in the St George's Chapel in St Mary's, offering an opportunity for silent prayer and reflection and to light a candle and sign a book of condolences. Books of condolence are also available in council buildings at Cardston, Chipping Norton, Woodstock, Chalbury and Burford. Flowers may also be laid at the west door of St John the Baptist Church in Burford. To mark the accession of the new sovereign, King Charles III, the District Council raised the Union flag to full mast in line with protocol. It was lowered again following a proclamation ceremony in Whitney Market Square and will remain at half-mast until the morning after Her Majesty's funeral. And there are pictures um, of the Queen visiting RF Bryce Norton, and that was actually on March the 12th, 1971. And the caption says her route was lined by members of Women's Royal Air Force and cadets from the local air training force. And there's another picture of the Queen... Uh, in Woodstock and she's commenting my word they are large and it's uh, she's making a joke as she saw gloves that were made in Woodstock for Elizabeth I. Now Valerie the police have got quite a job over the next few days. They have and the headline is police face region's biggest operation. The arrangements for the Queen's funeral will be Thames Valley Police's biggest ever operation the region's police and crime commissioner said. Matthew Barber said, It is a very emotional time for the whole country. She has given a lifetime of service to the country, but she was also a 96-year-old woman who was a grandmother and held in great affection 
for her personal conduct as well as her national role. In public life, we've been anticipating the plans around these sorts of events for some time. The state funeral on September the 19th will take place at Westminster Abbey after the late Sovereign has laid in state from today, that was Wednesday, until Monday morning at, nearly Westmin- at nearby Westminster Hall in the Houses of Parliament. However, a funerary procession will later head to Windsor before an internment at St George's Chapel in Windsor Castle. Mr Barber said, It will be Thames Valley's police's biggest ever operation, and planning has been in place, working very closely with the royal household, for many months through to the most minor details. During that operation, we will be assisted by the officers all over the country. Thames Valley Police will continue to police the rest of Thames Valley. I have spoken to the Chief Constable already this afternoon, and those plans are well in place and revised to make sure we can do Her Majesty proud when the time comes. For his part, Chief Constable John Campbell said it had been his officer's honour to serve the monarch. Mr Campbell, who was awarded the Queen's Policing Medal in the 2015 Birthday Honours List, added, The Queen has ruled for longer than any other monarch in British history, and Thames Valley Police has had the privilege of protecting the Queen whilst in residence at Windsor Castle. When an intruder allegedly managed to break into the castle's grounds last Christmas, it was armed officers from Thames Valley Police who were among those called to the scene. At Oxford Crown Court, judges, barristers and jurors held a two-minute silence last Friday to mark the monarch's death. Prosecutions that had, up until Thursday evening, been brought in the name of the Queen, or Regina, will now be in the name of the King, or Rex. Similarly, senior barristers and judges awarded the title of Queen's Counsel and given the style QC after their names, will now be known as King's Counsel. Among them will be the Recorder of Oxford, the St Aldate's Courthouse's resident judge, Ian Pringle. Appointed a QC long before he was elevated to the judge's bench, he will now be known as His Honour Judge Ian Pringle, Casey. Zet's coverage continues with uh, some reflections and thoughts from David Cameron, uh, the former Prime Minister. The headline is No Words for Loss of Monarch, says XPM. Former Prime Minister and Whitney MP David Cameron said there were no words to express the sense of loss the nation will feel. Mr Cameron, who still has a home in Dean in West Oxfordshire, said in a statement that the Queen had been a rock of strength for our nation and the Commonwealth. He made the first customary visit to Buckingham Palace in 2010 when he was appointed Prime Minister by the Queen after his Conservative Party went into coalition with the Liberal Democrats. He returned without a coalition partner, in 2015 after a successful election when the Conservatives were returned with a majority. He said he was very proud to have served as the Queen's 12th Premier 
and that it was a privilege to call on her sage advice and wise counsel. He said, There can simply be no finer example of dignified public duty and unstinting service, and we all owe our allegiance and sincere gratitude for her continued devotion, living every day by the pledge she made on her 21st birthday. Her dedication to the country has been incomparable, and as such, she leaves an enduring legacy. Mr Cameron added, My thoughts and prayers are with the King and the Royal Family at this time of great sadness. The country has lost a devoted public servant, and the Royal Family has lost a much-loved mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. And this article is illustrated with a photograph of Mr Cameron and the Queen at an event which I think was 2015, celebrating the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta. Oxfordshire MPs have been paying tribute to the Queen since her death last week. Conservative MP David Johnston, who represents Wantage and Didcot in the House of Commons, said he was, she was the best servant our country has. Oxford West and Abingdon MP Leila Moran, a Liberal Democrat, said the Queen was much loved by the people of Oxfordshire. She said, I'm deeply saddened to hear of the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, the only monarch most of us have ever known. She was much loved by the people of Oxfordshire and indeed across the world. My thoughts and condolences are with her family at this heartbreaking time. It has been an honour to have served in two of Her Majesty's Parliaments since 2017. As many of us have, I've admired her dignity and am grateful for her service to our country. I share in the grief that now sweeps across the nation. Annalisa Dodd, Labour MP for Oxford East, said... For 70 years, Queen Elizabeth II served our country and the Commonwealth with grace, dedication and commitment. Her lifetime of service is an inspiration to us all. As a nation mourns her passing, we send our love and support to the royal family and our new king. Conservative MP Victoria Prentice, who represents North Oxfordshire, said... We're all deeply saddened by the death of Her Majesty the Queen. The Queen has been a constant presence in all our lives. She was the longest-serving monarch in British history and throughout her life provided a shining example of duty and service. Her Majesty has been a much-loved and respected global figurehead during times of enormous change. Many of us in Banbury will remember when Her Majesty visited in 2008 to mark the 400th anniversary of the town's charter. Thousands filled the town centre waving flags, including lots of excited schoolchildren. It was a momentous occasion for our area. Now we're very pleased to welcome David Sarbats for this week's reflection. You're very welcome, David. Thank you. Just over a week ago, the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II was announced with this simple statement. The Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. 
Her death signified the end of an era, and for millions of people in the United Kingdom and around the world, the Queen has been the one constant in their lives. Most of us have never experienced any other monarch in our lives, so history was being made in our time. We have been listening on the radio or watching our televisions at the many moving ceremonies which have taken place since the Queen's death, including floral tributes being laid at the royal residences, the proclamation of Prince Charles as King, the moving of the Queen's coffin from Balmoral to St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, and yesterday the Queen was taken for the last time from her home in Buckingham Palace to lie in state in Westminster Hall in order that the general populace can pay their respects. Reflections on the Queen's life have been shared not just by her close family but also by many commentators, world leaders, politicians and so many more people. These people were able to share an insight into her remarkable life and the longevity of her reign, together with a personal story or two. She touched so many lives in different ways. But for me, her Christian faith, service and humility were evident in all the accounts we have heard. What a year 2022 has turned out to be. A little over three months ago, we celebrated the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, and on Monday the 19th of September, her funeral service will be held, a service in which we thank God for her life and celebrate it, and also honour her for the service, compassion and love she showed during her reign. The events in the year 2022 will certainly go down in history for the impact they have had on the world and a period which we will all remember for the rest of our lives. In her Christmas broadcast in 1957, Queen Elizabeth said this, I cannot lead you into battle. I do not give you laws or administer justice, but I can do something else. I can give you my heart and my devotion to these old islands and to all the peoples of our brotherhood of nations. Her own words are a very fitting tribute to all that she stood for and accomplished throughout her life. The Queen was patron of many organisations during her life, and one of those was the Boys' Brigade, or as it is more commonly referred to, the BB. I joined the BB in 1962, and served both, both boy and man for over 40 years. My wife and our three sons were also members of the BB for several years. Our boys achieved the two highest awards that can be gained as a member of the BB. Firstly, the President's Badge, followed by the Queen's Badge.
on the 30th of April 1994 to mark the retirement of the then Brigade President, Lord Thurso. Her Majesty invited young men from all over the country who had gained those awards, which included our sons, to take part in a royal review in the quadrangle at Windsor Castle. We travelled to Windsor on a beautiful sunny day, and our three sons were part of the great company of boys who marched from the soldiers' barracks in Windsor, through the streets of the town and on to the long walk in Windsor Great Park, leading into the quadrangle inside the palace grounds. It was a moving experience for everyone. They waited in silence for the Queen to appear. And when she did arrive, she was invited to inspect the large number of boys assembled before presenting a select few with their Queen's badge. During the inspection that followed, the Queen would stop and speak to a couple of boys in each of the columns. When she reached the column in which the boys from Whitney were, she stopped to speak with one of them, David, who had learning difficulties. One of our boys who was standing next to David told us afterwards that he could smell her perfume. The Boys' Brigade was founded in 1883 and its motto is sure and steadfast, which is taken from the book of Hebrews in the Bible and in verse 19 of chapter 6 we read these words which hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast this verse gave rise to the boys brigade hymn will your anchor hold the words of the chorus to the hymn have entered my mind numerous times in the past week we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll fastened to the rock which cannot move grounded firm and deep in the Saviour's love throughout her life Her Majesty the Queen had one constant in her life that of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way for you and for me I ask us all to reflect on the question raised in the first line of the hymn, Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? My reply is, absolutely. How will you answer that question? May God bless you and keep you. Amen. Thank you, David, for sharing those reflections with us. The Whitney Gazette also devotes space to the national picture leading up to Monday's state funeral. Minute silence for UK is the headline. The nation will hold a minute silence at 8pm on Sunday to mourn the Queen's death and reflect on her life and legacy. People are invited to mark the occasion privately at home, on their doorsteps or street, or at community events and vigils. Number 10 said... Those living overseas are also encouraged to take part at 8pm their time. 
Downing Street said the shared national moment of reflection will be an opportunity for everyone across the UK to mark the Queen's death. The Prime Minister's official spokesman said people are encouraged to come together. At 8pm on Sunday, September the 18th, the night before the state funeral, there will be a one-minute silence where the public are invited to come together and observe a national moment of reflection to mourn and reflect on the life and legacy of Queen Elizabeth II, he said. The silence can be marked privately at home on your own or with friends and neighbours, out on your doorstep or street with neighbours or any locally arranged community events and vigils. We encourage local community groups, clubs and other organisations to mark this moment of reflection. The shared national moment of reflection is an opportunity for everyone across the UK to mark the death of Her Majesty and we will set out details of where the Prime Minister will mark it closer to that time. The spokesman also suggested commuters may want to change their working patterns accordingly as the capital would be extremely busy for the Queen's lying in state. Infrastructure for the queue was set up so the public could view the Queen's coffin in Westminster Hall through to next Monday morning before her funeral with security staff preparing for millions of people to line up and pay their respects. The Prime Minister's spokesman said he could not be specific on numbers, but the city was expecting was expected to be extremely busy. I think for the Queen Mother it was around 200,000 people who attended, he said. We expect it to be far more than that for this lying in state. On whether commuters should work from home this week, if they normally travel into the capital from outside London... He said some people may wish to change their working patterns accordingly, but acknowledge not everyone will have that ability. Members of the public are being encouraged to plan ahead, with the army expected to be on hand to support the events in London over the coming days, the spokesman said. It will be about encouraging the public to plan ahead and to be prepared for obviously London being extremely busy during this time, he said. We do want to ensure as many people as possible are able to come into London during this time. This is the overarching aim. But equally, we need to ensure that people know what to expect and that they should plan ahead. It comes after Culture Secretary Michelle Donlan reportedly told colleagues people could be queuing for up to 30 hours, with the government planning for unprecedented demand. Asked if there will be any facilities for those who physically cannot wait for that length of time, the spokesman said, Obviously we want everyone to be able to attend, regardless of whether they have disabilities. Our focus is on ensuring they have the information needed to make the decision about what's right for them. There will be toilet facilities, there will be first aid available. There will be the ability for people obviously to go and use toilets and in turn to queues and things like that. And the programme for the next days, Wednesday the September the 14th, the Queen's Lying in State is expe- uh, began in Westminster Hall, Operation Marquee, following a ceremonial procession through London. It will last four days. Thursday the 15th, 
Lying in state continues and a rehearsal is likely to take place for the state funeral procession. Friday the 16th to Sunday the se- September the 18th, lying in state continues. Heads of state begin to arrive for the funeral. Monday, September the 19th. The lying in state ends at 6.30am. The Queen's state funeral will take place at 11am in Westminster Abbey, London. And we're back in West Oxfordshire for this story, which is headlined Proclamations of New King Charles. Hundreds gathered in the towns and villages of West Oxfordshire to mark the accession of Charles III. The former Prince of Wales was officially proclaimed king at a ceremony at St James's Palace in London on Saturday, and smaller ceremonies followed around the country, including in Whitney and in Chipping Norton. The proclamation in Whitney was led by the Mayor of Whitney, Liz Duncan, and delivered by Royal Representative and one of the Deputy Lieutenants of Oxfordshire, Rod Walker. Whitney Town Band and cadets from the 2120 Squadron and the Army Cadet Force were in attendance. On the dais were Town Clerk Sharon Groth, the Reverend Canon Toby Wright, Town Crier Jean Postlethwaite Dixon and Mace Bearer Nick Buckle. The Union flag at West Oxfordshire District Council was raised to full mast while the proclamation took place. The flags were then lowered to half-mast again and will remain there until the morning after the Queen's State funeral. In Carterton, the proclamation was delivered from the balcony of the Town Hall by Deputy Lord Lieutenant of Oxfordshire Ron Spurs and cheered by a crowd of about 250 people. A large floral tribute was laid on the war memorial. The proclamation ritual goes back centuries when word of mouth was the only way of cascading information. Sandra Coleman, Mayor of Chipping Norton, led a ceremony on the steps of the town hall there. Representatives of the Royal British Legion, Chipping Norton Fire Service, St Mary's Church, Chipping Norton Councillors and previous mayors cheered the proclamation delivered by another Deputy Lord Lieutenant, Martin Fines. The Oxfordshire County and City Proclamation was read by the High Sheriff of Oxfordshire, Mark Beard, at Carfax. Susanna Pressel, Chair of Oxfordshire County Council, said, Although the passing of Queen Elizabeth II is a time of great sadness for the people of Oxfordshire and for the nation and Commonwealth today, It is also a moment of hope, a seamless continuation of our constitutional monarchy with the proclamation of the accession of Charles III. We wish His Majesty well in his forthcoming duties and responsibilities. She concluded with, God save the King. The proclamation of a new monarch was last performed in February 1952 on the accession of Queen Elizabeth II. And the, the story is illustrated with a photograph on the steps of the town hall at Chipping Norton where perhaps 20 people, some in uniform and uh, other regalia, uh, are representing the community at the proclamation ceremony for the new king.
King Charles III led the royal family in a poignant display of respect for the late Queen walking behind the monarch's coffin with his siblings. Expressionless and looking straight ahead, Charles was joined by the Princess Royal, Earl of Wessex and Duke of York, as they followed the hearse carrying the Queen's oak coffin. It travelled from the Palace of Holyrood House, the Sovereign's official Edinburgh home, to St Giles Cathedral, where a service of thanksgiving for the life of the late monarch was held. Following in a car was the Queen Consort and the Countess of Wessex. But the new Prince of Wales and his brother Harry did not take part in this procession. At the beginning of the service, the Reverend Callum MacLeod welcomed the royal family, representatives of our nation's life and people whose lives were touched by the Queen in so many unforgettable ways. The headline is Tribute to the Queen. A UK Christian charity has paid tribute to the Queen. Elizabeth II died at her Scottish residence, Balmoral Castle, last Thursday, surrounded by members of the royal family. Christian Action Research and Education, C-A-R-E, a Christian voice in British politics since the 1980s, paid tribute to, tribute to a remarkable 70-year reign. Ross Hendry, CEO of CARE, said, We at CARE are deeply saddened by the death of Her Majesty the Queen. Our thoughts are with her children, the wider royal family, and all who knew her. Throughout her remarkable 70-year reign, she was a gentle and stable presence in our national life, bringing encouragement to millions of people. The Queen will be remembered as a servant leader, devoted to the people of England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and other nations across the Commonwealth. And the title is How the Queen Spread Joy with Decades of Tours Across the County. The Queen's first visit to Oxfordshire was as Princess Elizabeth in 1948, when she met staff, students and a tortoise at Oriel College. But she returned many times over the following decades, and on each occasion brought joy to the communities she visited. And this is illustrated by four photos, uh, one of the Queen at Christchurch in 1992, another smiling Queen at Mount Farm Community Education Centre in Berensfield. There's a very thoughtful Queen listening to a scientist when she visited the Department of Cellular Pathology in 1972. And finally, the Queen inspects the Guard of Honour at RAF Bryce Norton in 1971. The next article is headlined, A Look Back. And it looks back to the time in the 20s when the Queen was born um, and other world events at that time to put into context the, the period. Princess Elizabeth was born on April the 21st, 1926, at 17 Bruton Street in Mayfair, London, and she was third in line to the throne. She was the first child of the Duke of York, Prince Albert, and his wife, Elizabeth, who later became King George VI and Queen Elizabeth. The princess was christened Elizabeth Alexandra Mary, in the chapel at Buckingham Palace. 
She was named after her mother, and her two middle names are those of her paternal great-grandmother, Queen Alexandra, and her paternal grandmother, Queen Mary. The Prime Minister in 1926 was the Conservative Stanley Baldwin, who had won the 1924 general election. In the Soviet Union, Stalin had succeeded Lenin in 1924, while Mussolini had come to power in Italy in 1922. Calvin Coolidge was President of the United States of America. In 1926, a nine-day general strike was called in support of the miners and martial law was declared. And also in 1926, a new device was launched by John Logie Baird called the Mechanical Television System. 31 years later, the Queen would make her first televised Christmas address to the Commonwealth, saying, I very much hope this new medium will make my message more personal and direct. It's inevitable that I should seem a rather remote figure to many of you, but now, at least for a few minutes, I welcome you to the peace of my own home. And some other milestones around that time. In 1936, Princess Elizabeth's uncle, Edward VIII, abdicated, her father became George VI, and she became heir to the throne. In 1947, Princess Elizabeth married Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark at Westminster on November the 20th. Elizabeth wore a dress that she had paid for with ration tokens. The pair were in love, despite the fact that Philip was a controversial choice. He was foreign-born with no financial standing or kingdom. His sisters were married to men with links to the Nazis, so they were not invited to the wedding. Philip renounced his Greek and Danish titles, converted to Anglicanism, and adopted the title Lieutenant Philip Mountbatten. The king made Philip the Duke of Edinburgh, and granted him the title His Royal Highness. The couple were married for just over 73 years until his death on April the 9th, 2021. This item is headed A Life of Devotion. To her loyal subjects, she provided a constant source of reassurance and stability in often turbulent times. She was renowned for her dignity composure and the diplomatic prowess which never failed her and she enjoyed enormous popularity at home and abroad. As befitted her position, Queen Elizabeth did not take part in press interviews and rarely gave insights into her private life. However, over the decades it has been possible to build a picture of the person she was and how she balanced her roles of monarch mother and matriarch. Despite the responsibility she shouldered, family life was crucially important to the Queen. As a child, she was very close to her own parents, as reflected by a letter from her father after her wedding. I was so proud of you and thrilled at having you so close to me on the long walk in Westminster Abbey, but when I handed your hand to the Archbishop, I felt that I'd lost something very precious. During her reign, she drew great strength from her marriage to the Duke of Edinburgh. 
whose loyalty and support sustained her through many years of royal duties. Their enduring marriage produced four children, eight grandchildren and five great-grandchildren, and she has spoken of his constant support. In a speech to mark their golden wedding anniversary at London's Guildhall in 1997, she said, He has quite simply been my strength and stay all these years, and I and his whole fam and I and his whole family and this many other country and people from many other countries owe him a debt of gratitude which he would never claim for himself. As a young mother, her royal duties often took her away from the children. However, she has retained a close relationship with them and played an important role in the lives of her grandchildren and great-grandchildren, who refer to her as Granny, and have paid tribute to the stability that she provided. Away from the royal duties, the Queen maintained a range of hobbies and interests, which provided her with an opportunity to relax. She was a committed animal lover and a lifelong passion for dogs and horses. Her keen interest in horses saw her attend the uh, Derby and at Epsom and also the summer race meeting at Ascot every year. She was an owner and breeder of thoroughbreds and her horses won races at Royal Ascot on several occasions. The Queen was well known for her love of dogs, particularly the corgi breed. She was given her first corgi, Susan, for her 18th birthday and she has owned corgis ever since. A lesser known passion of the Queen's was Scottish country dancing. She held dances known as Gillies Balls for neighbours, estate and castle staff and members of the community during her stay at Balmoral Castle every year. She is said to have enjoyed a gin mixed with Dubonnet and been a big fan of um, Coronation Street on the television. Apparently, she and her mother, the late Queen, Queen Mother, often watched together when possible. Above all, however, it was her enormous sense of duty to the country and to the Commonwealth that characterised the Queen and created the legacy she has left behind for future monarchs. The approach to monarchy was summarised by her Golden Jubilee speech. Gratitude, respect and pride, these words sum up how I feel about the people of this country and the Commonwealth. And this is what the Golden Jubilee means to me. And I'd like to add that um, I think her sense of fun um, has uh, always impressed me and I can I shall never forget her appearing with James Bond at the 2012 Olympics and um, pretending to descend to the uh, uh, stadium on a no helicopter or I can't remember what it was now and also most recently with Paddington Bear having tea in the palace it was wonderful I'm sure many of us will have fond memories of sitting down with the family at Christmas, having demolished the turkey and uh, 
sitting down to watch or listen to the Queen's Christmas message. And we have a small selection of what the Queen said to us in those Christmas messages over the years. In her own words, 1952, the Queen's first Christmas message. Each Christmas at this time, my beloved father broadcast a message to his people in all parts of the world. Today, I am doing this to you, who are now my people. In 1957, it was the Queen's Christmas message televised for the first time when she said, It is inevitable that I should seem a rather remote figure to many of you, a successor to the kings and queens of history, someone whose face may be familiar in newspapers and films, but who never really touches your personal lives. But now, at least for a few minutes, I welcome you to the peace of my own home. In 1997, the year of Princess Diana's death and the Queen and Prince Philip's golden wedding anniversary, she said, This interweaving of joy and woe has been very much brought home to me and my family during the last months. We all felt the shock and sorrow of Diana's death. Thousands upon thousands of you expressed your grief most poignantly in the wonderful flowers and messages left in tribute to her. That was a great comfort to all those close to her, while people all around the world joined us here in Britain for that service in Westminster Abbey. But Prince Philip and I also knew the joy of our golden wedding. We were glad to be able to share this joy at Buckingham Palace with many other couples who are celebrating their 50th anniversary this year. In 1995, it was the 50th anniversary of VE Day and VJ Day. And the Queen told us, During a year of wartime commemorations, which has seen Commonwealth countries honouring their past, it has sometimes been tempting to let nostalgia lend a rosy glow to memories of war and to forget the benefits of the relatively peaceful years brought for us bought for us by the heroism and sacrifice to which we have been paying tribute. Those who suffered the horrors of warfare in whatever guise will not have been prey to this temptation. For them, war was not a boy's own tale of comradeship and good cheer, but one of hard slog, danger, suffering and exhaustion. 2016, uh, the year that Britain voted to leave the EU, and the Queen told us, as we leave the European Union, we must seize an historic opportunity to forge a bold new role for ourselves in the world and to unite our country as we move forward. And with our international partners, we must work together to promote trade, increase prosperity and face the challenges to peace and security around the world. And finally... Um, January the 18th, 2020, and the Queen was responding to Harry and Meghan's wish to stand down from being senior royals. Harry, and Meghan, Harry, Meghan and Archie will always be much-loved members of my family. I recognise the challenges they have experienced as a result of intense scrutiny over the last two years and support their wish for a more independent life. I want to thank them for all their dedicated work across the country the Commonwealth and beyond, 
and am particularly proud of how Megan has so quickly become one of the family. It is my whole family's hope that today's agreement will allows them to build a happy and peaceful new life. Well, the Queen spent her childhood in the pre-war years, and the late Molly Harris, who was a great friend of the Whitney Talking News, spent her childhood during a similar period in the village of Ducklington near Whitney, and she recorded her memories in a book entitled The Green Years, from which the following extract is taken. During the early 20s, early 30s, only a few families in the village owned a crystal set. We were one of these because our stepfather was clever with his hands and he'd made one. He'd bought copper wire, ebonite and a magic thing called a crystal in a glass tube, which I believe was called a cat's whisker because of its fineness. The same other parts of the, of, of the wonderful contraption, which were then transmitted words and music all the way from London. Mind you, you also needed to have a tall wireless pole, which had to be erected at the bottom of the garden. And the higher and further away from the home the pole was, the better the reception. A wire was then stretched to the top of the pole and brought into the house when it was connected to the wireless set. You had to have an earth, which, as well as this, after being attached to the set, was then taken out of the house via the window in our case, and then plunged into the soil in the garden. To be able to listen to this wonderful invention, you also needed a pair of headphones or earphones, so really only one person at a time could listen. Sometimes our stepfather would call us, "'Come quick and hear this, it's wonderful!' and he would swivel the headphones around so that we each had one earpiece pressed against our young pink ears, and we would sit there absolutely transfixed, listening to this magic contraption which brought in some mysterious way music and words from a distance of 60 miles away. Almost every week another family in the village would require, acquire a, t a wireless set. Ah, Mrs. Bertha Bothersome said to our mother one day, guess who's got one this time? Them Arnolds. I see them just put the pole up. And Mrs. Simmons next door was looking that envious. I bet she'll be the next one to have one. But apart from the pleasures of our wireless, we brought uh, the, the, that brought us, we still relied very much on the annual village activities. Uh, for much of our enjoyment. And the highlight of the year was the parish tea, which was always held on the Tuesday nearest Twelfth Night, a night when we tirelessly galloped around the parish room, joining in with the Lancers, Roger de Coverley. But to me, the highlight of the evening was when Mr. Franlin, the MC, announced, and now the next dance will be a Paul Jones. When I, as a fat 14-year-old, had the choice and the chance to dance with grown-up men. Real good dancers, some of them were too. Sometimes, I nearly, oh, somehow, I nearly always got fat Mr Spink. Mind you, he waltzed beautifully, and I seemed to ride around the room on his fat stomach, my feet just skimming the ground. We took a lot of room. 
Mr Spinks and I, for as he twirled me around and round, his left arm, which lightly held my right, was held outstretched. His eyes closed dreamily as we glided around and round to the strains of the Blue Danube. Make a good dancer one day, I shouldn't wonder, he puffed at me as the dance ended. Well, interesting to uh, compare um, those days with all the uh, developments that have happened since in, in technology. And, of course, the entertainments that children have nowadays compared with that. Right, OK, we've got notice board to come next. And we do have some birthdays in the coming week. There are actually three of them. And uh, two of them are on the 16th of September. And that is Mrs K.M. Atkins of Whitney and Mrs Daphne Wright of Whitney. And then on the 17th, it's Mr. Uh, sorry, it's Mrs. Anne, uh, Audrey Burney of Whitney. And of course, to all of them, we say many happy returns and we hope you have a splendid day. And now it's quiz time. And we've got last week's quiz and supplied, thankfully, with the answers. So, question one Which South American city is served? by El Dorado Airport. Any ideas? Blank. And it was Bogota, Bogota in Colombia. Now, you all know this one. Which Dickens novel features a Christmas party at Dingley Dell? Pick with Peters, yes. And question three... Which song opens with the words Good night Norma Jean? And who was the singer? Elton John. Yeah, Elton John. Yeah. And who was the song written about? Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe. Cool, that's good. You are. Uh, question four. You'd all know this one. Which US state is named the Golden State and has a golden poppy as its state emblem? California, yeah. And finally, what was first protected as royal birds by Elizabeth I? Swans. Yeah. Got some fantastic answers from you all there. Right, this week's quiz, obviously, it's got to be, hasn't it, all connected with the royal family. And question one, what was the surname of the Queen Mother before she married? Question two. Charles III will be the oldest heir to be crowned monarch. How old is he? Question three. How old was Elizabeth II when she became queen? And to follow that one, and how old was Elizabeth I when she became queen? And finally... Margaret Thatcher was Queen Elizabeth II's first female Prime Minister. For how long did she hold the position? Answers next week. And finally, with the notice board section, we sadly have to announce the following deaths. On the 4th of August, Laura Heather aged 95, from Ducklington. 
On the 25th of August, Susan Andrea Gray, aged 74. On the 26th of August, Philip Andrew Savage, aged 70, of Whitney. And on the 1st of September, John William Chandler, aged 79. And of course, our sincere condolences to all relations and friends of the deceased. And of course, to which we must add that the Whitney Talker News' condolences must be passed to the royal family as they mourn Queen Elizabeth II. That's the end of this week's notice board. This is the annual town fair. Screams of excitement and exhilaration filled the air as thrill-seekers conquered their fear to feel the wind rushing through their hair and the blood pumping through their veins on the roller coasters at Whitney Feast. Hundreds of families headed to the Lees on an unseasonably warm night for the event, featuring over 60 rides and attractions. Back in Whitney for the first time in four years was one of the UK's most iconic thrill rides, Air. The attraction sends 24 riders through the sky on a star-shaped cluster of spinning and flipping gondolas attached to a 28-metre, 91-foot, rotating boom. The the exhilarating ride has a loyal band of fans who will travel great distances to experience it. After making its debut in 2021, the city star flyer returned to offer fairgoers spectacular views of the surroundings to Oxford and beyond. Standing 55 metres tall, or a whopping 180 feet, the flying chair ride is one of the highest of its kind. With over 60 attractions in total, other popular rides will include the Wild Mouse Spinning Coaster, Waltzer, Dodgems, Storm, Space, Super Trooper, Superstar, Extreme and many more. For families and younger Feast fans, there were attractions such as the Dragon Coaster, Helter Skelter, four fun houses and a wide selection of children's rides, trampolines, inflatables, games and food, as well as the traditional Gallopers carousel. Emily Wilson of Bob Wilson's Fun Fair said, Whitney is a highlight of our back-end run of fairs without a doubt. Just as the nights start closing in, it's a delight to be able to light up the Lees with a spectacular array of rides and attractions. And this year we've got possibly the strongest selection ever. The Fun Fair's roots date back to 1243, when local people were said to have feasted on two deer from the Royal Forest of Witchwood, which were provided by King Henry III to help celebrate the rededication of the church we now know as St Mary's. Over the years, the feast has been marked by everything from singing and dancing to horse racing and the sale of livestock. The event, which continued on Tuesday night, went ahead in line with government advice for entertainment events during the period of national mourning for the Queen. A minute's silence was held at 4pm on Monday and a book of condolence was available. Organisers Bob Wilson's funfairs will also make a donation to a local children's charity in memory of the Queen. 
And there is a wonderful picture, obviously taken from this uh, chair ride, of St. well above St. Mary's and with a view right the way across the country. It's fantastic. Now, Peter said there would be very little else about the royal family, but I just wanted to give my um, reminiscence, actually, of my one and only interaction up close with members of the royal family, and it was with the now King Charles III when I lived and worked in Papua New Guinea. He came out to visit, and there was much excitement about the place. They referred to him as Prince Sali, um, instead of Charlie, I suppose. But what I remember from it, really, was particularly, was that they addressed him at uh, the when he was at um, Parliament House as Piccaninny belong Mrs Queen. <laughs> anyway, my article is headlined New Milestone for Thames Valley Air Ambulance Service. Thames Valley Air Ambulance Service is joining with five other air ambulances to bring its air operations in-house with an air operator certificate. The charity celebrated the milestone during Air Ambulance Week, which was September the 5th to the 9th, which focused on the critical moments and life-saving difference the 21 air ambulances which operate in the UK make. Amanda McLean, CEO at Thames Valley Air Ambulance, said... Our charity exists to make a life-saving difference for whomever may need us, whenever they do. Every decision we make as a charity is for the good of the critically ill patients we help. This next step in our evolution is as an independent healthcare provider, and it was necessary to ensure we can continue to offer the absolute best care to the people we treat. They deserve the very best in their moment of need. Bringing the aviation operations in-house means Thames Valley Air Ambulance will be directly and legally responsible for all aspects of its operations and for the compliance and safety of the flight operations and the associated airworthiness management of the aircraft. This will give the charity the power and flexibility to make decisions about the aircraft based on its own data and work into its own timelines. The current helicopter, which has a codename GTVAL, will be returned to Babcock International at the end of the contract and the charity will then bring in its own aircraft. The replacement helicopter, which will have a codename GTVLY, will be kitted out with the same life-saving equipment currently used and operated from the operations base at RAF Benson. Ms. McLean added, having our own helicopter was part of Thames Valley Air Ambulance's long-term strategy to ensure we are as patient-centric and efficient as we can be. I was delighted to be able to make this announcement during Air Air Ambulance Week when we celebrated the real difference our life-saving charities make for the communities we serve. The service receives no regular government or national lottery funding and operates as an independent healthcare provider. As a charity, the organisation relies on the generosity of its supporters to keep its helicopter in the skies, as well as five critical care response vehicles on the road. To explore how you can help this life-saving local charity, visit 
tvairambulance.org.uk slash donate. Thames Valley Air Ambulance provides emergency medical care by air and land to patients in Berkshire, Buckinghamshire and Oxfordshire. Critical care paramedics and doctors are highly trained and ready to deal with any emergency. The charity Style Acre has launched a Healthy Hearts project in Banbury. The Oxfordshire-based charity supports 288 people with learning disabilities and autism throughout Oxfordshire. Over the next six months, staff and volunteers will be focusing on how to keep your heart healthy with a focus on physical activity and healthy eating. The project has been funded by Public Health through Oxfordshire Community Foundation. The charity's website said, We're excited to be working with local partners such as Charwell District Council and Achieve Oxford to deliver workshops, activity taster sessions and staff training, culminating in a big Healthy Hearts February celebration. People supported by the charity have been decorating Healthy Hearts folders and filling them with British Heart Foundation leaflets. Headline is, uh, Use in the Community Raise Funding. Young people who enrolled on Oxford United in the community's National Citizen Service Summer Programme have raised more than £3,700 for six regional and national charities. Asylum Welcome, Age UK, Oxfordshire, Samaritans, Children's Cancer and Leukaemia Group Homeless Oxfordshire and Restore each received a portion of the £3,715 participants raised for their respective social action projects. The projects were planned and delivered in the second week of Oxford United in the Community's two-week courses, which were hosted in partnership with the English Football League Trust. Programmes are government-funded and aim to promote essential life skills in people aged 16 and 17 by developing teamwork, organisation and project planning skills. Scores of participants were split into six teams in two waves this summer. They were then tasked with delivering a project which would positively impact the lives of people and groups living in Oxfordshire. Aled Newton, NCS Programme Manager at Oxford United in the community, said, All participants should be very proud of their efforts this summer. Together, they have raised an extraordinary amount of money which will directly support people in need living locally and help tackle live issues including homelessness, loneliness, our physical and mental well-being and more. Now, this article focuses not on the Queen but on the king. He said, Queen Elizabeth was a life well lived, a promise with destiny kept, and she is mourned most deeply in her passing. That promise of lifelong service I renew to you all today. On the Queen's death, Prince Charles ascended to the throne. At 73 years of age, King Charles III is the oldest heir to be crowned monarch. The, succession, the Accession Council met at St James's Palace on Saturday, September the 10th to formally declare him as the new monarch. News of his accession 
was proclaimed across the England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland over the weekend. And below a photograph of a younger Prince Charles in Royal Air Force uniform is the saying, Long live the King, Charles III. Well, that's all we've got time for, so please remove the memory stick from the playback unit and close that metal shield. And please remember to reverse the plastic address label on the yellow pouch before you post it back to us. And please could you do that as soon as possible, because we sometimes run out of labels and pouches and are then unable to continue our service to you. Now, it only remains for me to thank the Whitney Gazette for the stories we've had tonight, which were heavily, obviously, emphasising the death of Queen Elizabeth. Um, and uh, we're, 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 uh, uh, and we're, we've got to thank, of course, our technical expert, Peter Brading, and our copiers who are going to be Peter and Valerie. And then, also, there were those people who were checking the pouches and the memory sticks that you've returned and keeping records in our register. And they were Francis Ashling and Rachel Fielding. And so, finally, there are four readers. They were Alan, Anne, Michael and Valerie. And I know we'd all like to say goodbye, and so, until our next edition... Goodbye. goodbye. Soundings. Features from across the UK. Now for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights. We hope we've picked ones, particularly Saturday, Sunday and Monday, which won't be affected by the funeral of Her Majesty the Queen. Details of that coming up in the highlights on Monday. But we'll start with Saturday, September 17th. On Radio 4 at 2.45, this week's episode of 39 Ways to Save the Planet is called Big Drop Energy. As society increasingly relies on wind and solar energy, what happens when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine? The programme looks at how the answer could lie with a deceptively simple pulley system. On Radio 4 Extra at 4, Fighting Over Beverly is Israel Horovitch's story in which a man from Yorkshire travels to America to reclaim a war bride 45 years after they met. Also on Radio 4 Extra at 7, Pam Ayres, The Radio Years, celebrates her remarkable life and BBC radio career. While on Saturday on Radio 4 at 9.45pm, Joe Smith and his waxworks... The Living Ghosts is the first of a three-part series about the life and work of touring 19th-century waxwork showman Joe Smith, as told via the memoirs of colleague and nephew Bill. Sunday, September 18th, and on Radio 4 at 11.15am, Desert Island Discs, when the castaway is TV presenter and former tennis star Sue Barker. The programme on the World Service at 10.30 sounds intriguing, Heart and Soul looks at the connections between beer and Christianity. On Radio 4 Extra at 1, you can hear an omnibus edition of In Search of Mary Shelley, 
a reading from Fiona Sampson's biography of the author of Frankenstein. Back to Radio 4 on Sunday afternoon at 2.45, what really happened in the 90s is a look back to the moments in the 1990s that helped shape the world today. The first of ten episodes, Cool Britannia, looks at London's emergence as a dominant centre of economic and cultural activity. It's followed at three o'clock on Radio 4 by the final part of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. While on Radio 3 at 6.45 in California burning, poet and novelist Kim Adonisio, alarmed by the state's increasing number of wildfires, heads to National Secure Forest to follow in the footsteps of Jack Carouche, who spent a season as a fire lookout there. On to programmes then that are broadcast at the same time every day, all week. Usually Monday to Friday. We think this week will be slightly different because of the funeral of Her Majesty the Queen. But they will be on the rest of the week, same time, same radio station, every day. At 9.45am on Radio 4, the book of the week is Fen, Bog and Swamp by Annie Pruu, who channels her environmentalist passion in a history of the world's wetlands described as an elegant and compelling contribution to the debate around climate crisis. On Radio 3 at 12 noon, composer of the week is Emily Mayer, 1812-1883, the German composer who was known in her lifetime as the female Beethoven and considered by some to be the most prolific female composer of the Romantic period. At 1.45 each day on Radio 4, The Boy in the Woods continues. While on Radio 4 Extra 2, in Montparnasse, charts the birth of surrealism in this racy, rackety Paris quartier. It's followed at 2.15, still on Radio 4 Extra, by the first of a series two of Eleanor Rising, about the young Eleanor of Aquitaine. Well, at 3.30, every day on Radio 4, you can hear these shortlisted entries in the BBC National Short Story Awards. And each day finishes at 10.45 at night on Radio 4, the book at bedtime, Stone Blind, the story of Medusa, as it's never been heard before, charting how she is unjustly cursed and transformed. On to then the radio highlights for the rest of the week. And we start with Monday, September 19th, and it will be a very different day on British radio. For the first time in commercial radio's history, there will be the funeral of Her Majesty the Queen. And the BBC will be covering it, of course, on BBC Radio 4. What we do know about the funeral service is that it will be at 11 o'clock at Westminster Abbey. And prior to the funeral, the Queen, who will have been lying in state in Westminster Hall for four days, allowing thousands of people to pay their respects, will be transferred, the coffin will be transferred from Westminster Hall on the morning of Monday, the 19th of September, to the service at Westminster Abbey. And there will be a state funeral service taking place, the first time that that's happened since Winston Churchill's funeral in 1965. Following the state funeral, the coffin will travel in procession from Westminster Abbey to Wellington Arch, and then the coffin will travel to Windsor, and there will be another service, a committal service, at St George's Chapel in Windsor. So a day of commemorations and remembering Her Majesty the Queen. 
and it will be on BBC Radio 4 and it will be reflected on all radio stations on Monday. A very different day for British radio. A couple of other highlights for Monday which we hope will be on on Radio 4 Extra. Something that might give you some light relief on a day that will be very different for the country and everyone listening. On Radio 4 Extra at 1.30 and repeated at 8.30 at night, Penelope Keith stars as Agatha Raisin in a dramatisation of The Walkers of Dembley by M.C. Beaton. While on Radio 4 Extra at 3 o'clock, a capital case, Karl Marx meets Sherlock Holmes, is David Zane Marovich's tale from 2001. Tuesday, September 20th, in the Life Scientific on Radio 4 at 9am, Emily Holmes tells Jim Al-Khalili about her work as a mental health scientist and her lifelong love of art, explaining why the images a person sees in their mind's eye have more impact on their emotions than their verbal counterpart. On Radio 4 Extra at 10am, the first part of a dramatisation of Cold Comfort Farm, Stella Gibbon's 1932 novel set in rural England. The story runs for the rest of the week as well. At 10am, all week, 3 o'clock, it's repeated each day as well. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. There's more drama on Radio 4 at 2.15 on Tuesday with Calls from Far Away, a science fiction drama about change and what defines a life. A discovery on Pluto promises profound ramifications back down on Earth. On Radio 4 at 8pm, the Today debate asks the question, is justice delayed, justice denied? The Today team look at the impact of trials of long court delays and looks at what might be done to restore faith in the justice system. It's followed at 8.40, still on Radio 4, by In Touch, the news views and information for people who are blind or partially sighted, presented, as usual, by the brilliant Peter White. Wednesday, September 21st, Radio 4 Extra at 11am, a programme from 2013 celebrating 50 years of the National Theatre. Contributions from Judy Dench, Richard Bryars, playwright Howard Brenton and artistic directors Laurence Olivier, Peter Hall, Richard Eyre and Nicholas Heitner. Then at one o'clock, still on Radio 4 Extra on Wednesday, the first part of a Francis Durbage detective thriller, Paul Temple and the Jonathan Mystery. And the story's in eight parts and it continues every day at the same time, one o'clock on Radio 4 Extra, it is repeated each night at 8pm, if that's a better time. Choral Evensong on Wednesday on Radio 3 is at 4 o'clock from St Matthew's Church in Westminster. On Radio 4 at 8.45pm, Forethought, crime writer Amit Dand shares his experiences of growing up in Bradford, of how his family integrated with the local community. He offers thoughts on how the areas of the arts, sports and health can contribute to the process. Well, at nine o'clock on Radio 4, Wild Highway. Marianne Ochota travels from Finland to Albania to gauge the success of the 12,500 kilometre long wildlife corridor created 20 years ago along the old Iron Curtain. Thursday, September 22nd, Radio 4 at 9am, and this week's instalment of the series In Our Time is called Plato's Atlantis, the legendary island described by the ancient Greek philosopher which sank into the sea is today's topic. Radio 4 at 3, Ramblings, Claire Balding joins a group of walkers with type 1 diabetes who discovered the beautiful lush landscapes around Epsom Racecourse in Surrey during lockdown walks. 
And on Radio 4 at 11pm, in the series Your Place or Mine, Michaela Strachan talks about Cape Town, South Africa, with ziplining, whale watching and wine among the many attractions that this part of South Africa has to offer. And we round off this very strange week, Friday, September 23rd. A new five-part drama series begins on Radio 4 at 2.15. One, five, seven years. About an alternative world where a minority of people are discovered to extended life syndrome, which allows them to live twice as long as everyone else. Gardner's Question Time on Radio 4 at 3 comes from Central Lancashire, with Kirsty Wilson, Christine Walkden and James Wong answering locals' queries about all aspects of horticulture. And we finish the week on Radio 3 at 7.30pm with an in-concert featuring the concert of organ music from Eveta Abakana, playing the organ of the Royal Festival Hall with music from Philip Glass and Bach. That's it. Thank you to Wendy for the highlights this week. We appreciate your patience in particular this week. And may I wish you a peaceful, safe and enjoyable week of radio listening. Hello, this is Val from Otley Talking News with my selection of audio-described TV programmes for the week beginning Saturday the 17th to Friday the 23rd of September 2022. Before I start reading this week's listings, I should mention that there is a notice in this week's Radio Times advising that as the death of Queen Elizabeth II was announced as the magazine went to press, all the week's programmes and schedules are liable to change. So it may be that some of my selections will not be broadcast at the times and dates listed. However... On we go with Saturday the 17th of September. Animal Super Parents is on BBC Two at 10am. A look at how animals living in groups divide the labour. There is a double bill of Midsummer Murders this afternoon, starting at 2pm. When a wealthy landowner's body goes missing on the night of his death, a sinister web of secrets and lies is exposed in the village of Little Malton. A new four-part history series starts on Channel 4 tonight at 8pm. Hitler, The Lost Tapes, exploring the public and private life of the infamous dictator. This opening episode documents the Fuhrer's rise to power. Casualty is on BBC One at 8.35pm. Saar resists Jules' attempts to care for their dad, while Charlie helps Dylan. The final episode of Griff's Canadian Adventure is on Channel 4 at 9pm. Griff uncovers what it is about living in the Pacific Northwest that makes people strive harder for happiness. This is followed at 10pm by Channel 4's late-night film, the action-spy thriller Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, starring Tom Cruise. Moving on to Sunday, the 18th of September. Agatha Christie's Poirot is on ITV3 at 3.05pm. Poirot falls in love with the chief suspect in a series of jewel thefts. Gino's Italy, like Mama used to make, is on ITV at 7.30pm. 
Gino heads for Tuscany and is inspired to cook a delicious steak Fiorentina. Frozen Planet 2 is on BBC One at 8pm. After four months of winter darkness over the Arctic Ocean, the sun returns and mother polar bears lead their cubs down to the sea ice to hunt. Tonight's finale of the drama Ridley is on ITV at 8pm. When Ridley and Carol are called out to investigate the death of a man who fell from his balcony, the former detective makes a shocking discovery linking the current murder case with the arson attack which killed his family. Two choices at 9pm. The Radio Times pick of the day is the new series of the crime drama Bloodlands on BBC One, starring James Nesbitt. When DCI Tom Brannock is called to the scene of a shooting, he recognises the victim as an accountant from his past, and the investigation of the dead man's widow soon leads Tom into a web of intrigue. Simon Reeves' South America is on BBC Two at 9pm. Simon visits the biggest country on the continent, Brazil, beginning in one of the remotest regions of the Amazon. Now for those daytime programmes which are on at the same time throughout the week. A new series, Northern Justice, is at 10am. Homes Under the Hammer is at 11.15. Bargain Hunt is at 12.15. Doctors is at 1.45. And Escape to the Country is at 3pm. All these programmes are on BBC One, Monday to Friday. Dickinson's Real Deal is at 2pm on ITV and Heartbeat is at 5.55pm on ITV3, Monday to Friday. Great American Railroad Journeys is on BBC4 at 7pm, Monday to Thursday. Now on to Monday, the 19th of September. The BBC and other main TV channels will be covering Queen Elizabeth II's funeral, probably for most of the day but unfortunately we don't have full details at the moment. This will obviously affect the radio time schedules and may include the following programmes. Endeavour is on ITV3 at 8pm. Morse investigates when a tragic car accident turns out to be something far more questionable. In Jamie's One Pan Wonders at 8.30pm on Channel 4, Jamie makes smashed lemongrass chicken and sweet potato chilli. A new three-part thriller, Crossfire, starts on BBC One at 9pm tonight, starring Keely Hawes as Joe, a woman whose dream holiday is shattered when gunmen attack the holiday complex. This is the Radio Times pick of the day. Parts two and three are at the same time on Tuesday and Wednesday. The final part of The Boys from Brazil, Rise of the Bolsonaros, on BBC Two at 9pm, tells the story of Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro's time in office from his inauguration in 2019 to the campaign for next month's election. Tuesday the 20th of September. Four choices at 8 o'clock tonight.
on BBC Two, the hotel people at the prestigious Culloden Hotel in Belfast, new general manager Andy and his team are working hard to please guests and maintain a five-star reputation. On ITV, there is a repeat of Vera from Series 11. The body of an addiction support worker is discovered in the unforgiving wilds of the Northumberland National Park. On Channel 4, in the Great British Bake Off, it's Biscuit Week. Over on Channel 5 at 8pm, the Yorkshire Vet. Julian Norton performs an emergency plasma transfusion for a baby alpaca on the front lawn of the practice in Thursk, and Peter Wright attends to a cat with a serious eye problem. The second part of the thriller Crossfire is on BBC One at 9pm. Now we move on to Wednesday the 21st of September. Two choices at 8pm tonight. In the repair shop on BBC One, items for repair include a unicycle, a huge copy of the Bible, a water-damaged wooden table and a colourful ring which was discovered in a scorched state at the bottom of a fireplace. A new series of handmade Britain's Best Woodworker starts on Channel 4. Ten enthusiasts have just two days to produce a dining table inspired by a country of their choice. On BBC Two at 8.30pm in Nadia's Everyday Baking, she offers up her favourite go-to roasts, including a roast chicken with a difference. Doc Martin is on ITV at 9pm. Martin attends Stuart's survival course, but unlike PC Penhale and Al, it's not as one of the participants. The final episode of Crossfire is on BBC One at 9pm. We end today's choices with The Great on Channel 4 at 11.05pm. While co-parenting their newborn son, Catherine and Peter try to evade their feelings for each other, but then the baby goes missing. Thursday the 22nd of September Saving Lives at Sea is on BBC Two at 8pm. In Eastbourne, new recruit Chris is put to the test when two people are cut off by the tide near Beachy Head. John and Joe Bishop, Life After Death, is on ITV at 9pm. Comedian and actor John Bishop and his hearing-impaired son Joe embark upon a journey to understand more about the deaf community. They attempt to learn British Sign Language, BSL, together and John sets himself the challenge of performing an entire comedy routine in BSL. All Creatures Great and Small is over on Channel 5 at 9pm. James struggles to get Siegfried to let him take the reins now that he is junior partner at the practice. Finally, we come to Friday the 23rd of September. The fourth series of supernatural comedy Ghosts starts tonight at 8.30pm on BBC One when Alison and Mike open a bed and breakfast. This is the Radio Times pick of the day. 
Time for some more amusing banter in tonight's episode of Mortimer and Whitehouse Gone Fishing at 9pm on BBC Two. Paul and Bob catch the sleeper train to the Highlands to fish for the elusive ferox trout on the River Garry. Later, Bob searches for the Loch Ness Monster. Professor T is on ITV at 9pm. The Professor investigates when a prominent barrister and his second wife are found dead in a shooting that has uncanny parallels to a double murder that the lawyer successfully prosecuted 15 years before. In Martin Compston's Scottish Fling at 9.30 on BBC Two, Martin and his pal Phil McHugh begin this leg on the beach at St Andrews where they try their hands at land yachting before heading to Dundee to find out about the city's thriving gaming industry. I hope some of my choices will appeal to you and once again apologies for the uncertainty of this week's schedule of programmes. TNF Soundings 